Thanks, Nate. A little Mozart, just pull out of your pocket there. Exulta, exulte jubilate, joy in the highest, is that what that means? Alleluia, alleluia is the, the Greek version of hallelujah. Hallelujah is the Hebrew commandment to do what? Praise you the Lord. Yah, praise you the Lord. Praise you the Lord. Hallelujah. That's where joy comes from, joy in the highest. Praising the Lord, doing what we're made to do. And that's what our sermon's about today. Doing what we're made to do. What we were made, what we were built to do. This whole month and into February, we're going to be talking about built, being the church of God that is built for a purpose. Today, we're going to be looking at why God built us as a church. Today, we're going to continue to read through Ephesians, and we're, we're doing this book through the lens of the church. We're reading this letter ecclesiologically. That's a big word that means through the lens of the church. When we read this amazing letter in, in this way, ecclesiologically, we see that God is revealing throughout the letter to the Ephesians his design for the church. He's giving us kind of his blueprints for the body of Christ. And we can see how God's like this master architect, this, this great builder, and Ephesians is like his blueprints for how he builds his house. So last week we started with the, the first step of any house. Once you've leveled the ground, you lay the foundation. The foundation that is laid in order to give stability and support to the house. It has to have a good foundation. And we saw how the Apostle Paul starts this great letter out with this amazing statement of blessing. After he introduces himself in verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. He has shown off his riches. He has lavished his riches of his grace upon us. We as the bride of Christ have been spoiled by our bridegroom. He's lavished all these riches on us. He's made us beautiful and he's made us worthy to be brought into the family of God. See, we're, we're no longer sinners. We are saints. We're holy ones who are set apart from the profane and common things of this world in order to be God's beloved children. We've been adopted into God's family. We've been chosen from the beginning of all time. We've been redeemed and bought with the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it, we sang at the end of the service last week. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed through his infinite mercy, his child and forever, I am his child. That's the basis for the household of God. That's the foundation upon which everything else rests. The, the foundational truth of the church is that she is made up of the saints, the holy ones who've been redeemed, purchased, and, and brought back to God as holy children. That truth has huge fundamental implications for how we live our lives, both individually and corporately as a church, right? It changes our identity. We're not just a group of people who gathers here on Sundays on the corner of Hillsborough and Woodmont. We're not just people who try to do the right thing. We are now part of the family of God. And when you're adopted into a family, 
It changes every part of your life. You, you now have a new name. No longer are you called sinner. Now you are called saint. The, the values and the, the priorities of your new family now become your values and priorities. What your new family does is what you do. Your family is who you are. But here's the question for today. Are we redeemed and adopted just so we can enjoy being a part of the family of God as, as a kid? Or are we just you know, enjoying these riches of grace that have been lavished on us? It sounds like, you know, Orphan Annie and Daddy Warbucks or something, right? Like, woohoo, we got this great rich place now to enjoy. This is awesome. Is that the point? Is that the whole point of Christianity? Just so we can enjoy the riches of grace that have been lavished on us? Our God is not some benevolent millionaire, even if he had all his hair. He's not some, you know, old school tycoon either. He's the sovereign Lord of the universe. When he does something, including redeeming us, it's always part of a bigger plan, of a, a greater purpose. And that's what Paul goes on to talk about next in the letter to the Ephesians. So let's stand if you're able to this morning. Don't worry if you're, if you're not able. If you're able to, as I read from Ephesians chapter 1, let's stand in honor of God's word. We ended at verse 8 last week, but I want to back up to verse 7 again to get a running start for our text for today. Verse 7, chapter 1. In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, <clears throat> when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. You know, people all around us are looking for purpose, aren't they? This past Wednesday night at Simple Worship, we, we started a, a new series. We actually continued a new series on the meta-narrative of Scripture, the big story of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, zooming out 10,000 feet and looking at the story of everything ever that's covered in Genesis to Revelation. And we mentioned how a lot of folks are going through this life with their values all mixed up. You know, they, they worship their work. They work at their play. They play at their worship. They got everything backwards. And therefore, they resemble characters 
that are in search of a plot. Characters who are lost and looking for a deeper meaning to give their lives to. There's a real plot hunger in our world today. People that are looking for a greater story to make sense of their lives. People want their lives to matter somehow. You know, young people coming out of college aren't looking for standard jobs anymore. They want to make a difference in the world. They want to go to third world countries and they don't want to just buy shoes. They want to buy shoes that if you buy a pair, another pair is given to a kid without shoes. People want their lives to matter and make a difference. They want to achieve something that lasts. And we all want to obtain something in this life that's more fulfilling than just the American dream, right? The American dream of two cars in the garage and 2.5 kids and a white picket fence around our nice house. We saw a great example of, of this plot hunger in our world about 15 years ago when there was a book that was published it was one of the best-selling books of all time. It's the second most translated book in the world. What's number one? The Bible. Number two, anybody know? Purpose Driven Life. Very good. Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren, Pastor Rick Warren, Saddleback Church in California. That book went on to sell 30 million copies in five years from 2002 to 2007. That's almost one out of every 10 Americans. Not all the people that bought it were American, but you see the point. It was on the New York bestsellers uh, list, New York Times bestsellers list, for over 90 weeks consecutively. It continues to sell in just about any bookstore you go into today. Since 2007, it has gone on to sell another 30 million copies, 60 million copies total of this book. It's, it's, isn't that proof right there that there's plot hunger in our world? that people are looking to define their purpose. People are wanting to live a life of purpose. They're, they're longing for a, a more significant reason to keep on getting out of bed each day other than just the daily grind to go and try to make some money. They're desperate to find a deeper reality than what this world is selling. It always comes up short. Billions of dollars are spent annually to convince us and, and people around us that if you only had this new thing or if you drove this car or if you used this hair product, then you would thrive and you would flourish in your life. Those are lies, right? Let's call it what it is. They're lies. All of those products, all of those things, all the material goods of this world let us down eventually. They all fail to satisfy at a deeper level what it is that we truly long for. They fail to deliver on the promises of the billion dollar advertising industry. And so many people, including you and me, I've been there, we're tricked. We, we fall for the lies. We, we, we get tricked into trying to, to, to run our lives and try to obtain these things that we think are gonna make us happy. That's when we're the hero of our own story. When we're on the throne of our lives, when we become the center of it is that we're living for. We say, I'm the protagonist in my story. I'm number one, I gotta look out for me. You know, people are desperate to have a life that matters, but all of their great plans to climb the 
corporate ladder or to have the perfect family or to be attractive physically or to be someone who's important and has control or power. All of those plans fail in the end. Why? Why do they fail? Because we're not the hero of the story. Rick Warren famously begins the purpose-driven life with what? What's the sentence that begins it? It's not about you. <laughs> it's one of the keys to finding a life that matters, is to realize you're not the hero of the story. Even when we read the Bible, we, we tend to read it narcissistically, looking for ourselves. Where am I in this text? Instead of, where is God? What's God doing in this text? He's the hero of the story. We've got to get that straight, first and foremost. You say, what? It's not about me? Why? Why not? All the advertising I see says, I'm the hero. I'm the one who deserves a spa day. I should indulge in that fancy house. I need to look after number one in order to flourish in this life. If I'm going to be happy like the people on TV, I need to do what they say and get that new hair gel. The fundamental problem with that kind of thinking is that it's grounded in a false reality. It's just not true. It's grounded in lies that are meant to get your money, right? It's, it's manipulative. The, the reality of the world and the universe is what really matters. And who determines reality? Who gets to decide what's true with a capital T? Who, who defines reality as it really is? Well, if there's something bigger than us out there, if there's some greater power, something bigger than ourselves, then their reality is more important. It, it must be more real than, than ours or TV's reality. Whatever it is that the ultimate authority is, whatever it is that he wants, whatever his plans are, that's what will give our lives meaning and purpose. As Christians, we proclaim that the ultimate authority in the universe and beyond is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who was in the beginning, is now, and ever will be, world without end. Amen, amen. Therefore, if we're going to make sense of our lives, if we're going to find any real and lasting meaning to why we're here and what we're doing, we must first ask, what is God's purpose? That will define our purpose. Well, the, the passage we just read tells us clearly what God's purpose is. In, in verse 9, Paul says that not only has God lavished his riches on us and given us every spiritual blessing, which, by the way, are far greater than any material blessing that this world has to offer because they're going to last forever. Not only has he done all that, but he's also made known to us the mystery of his will. In the, in the Bible, the word mystery doesn't mean like a, a puzzle to be solved, like a murder mystery or, you know, a mystery uh, escape game where you have to figure out a puzzle. In, in the Bible, when it says mystery, it, it means something that's hidden, something that, that can only be known by revelation. It's like the veil being pulled back from the truth. That's what a mystery is. And you and I have been revealed. The, the, the curtain's been pulled back on the mystery of God's will. We've, we've been made privy to God's will. The mystery that has been revealed to us 
is what God wants, what he's up to, what he's accomplishing in the world today. It says there in verse 9 that, that God's made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. You know, when you, when you watch a good movie or when you read a really good book and you just get lost in it, it's because you identify so completely with the protagonist, right? You get so wrapped up in wanting what the hero wants that it compels you to lose yourself. You're cheering so hard for the hero to get whatever it is that he wants. That will be a happy ending if the hero achieves what he set out to achieve. The same thing is true in the story of everything ever, the story of the Bible. When we begin to understand how truly awesome the hero of this story is, then we lose ourselves in wanting what he wants. It doesn't matter what we want anymore because our heart begins to align with his heart. Here we've, we've been told what our hero's purpose is and how he's accomplishing it. How is he doing it? It says here that he set forth his purpose in what? In Christ. Jesus Christ is the key to the, the whole plan. He's the, the piece of the plan that makes it all work. He's the, 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 the cornerstone of the house is what Paul says later on. So Jesus is the how, but, but what is the purpose? What's the what here? What, what is God about? Well, the next verse tells us more clearly, verse 10. The mystery of God's will, his, his purpose that was set forth in Christ is a plan for the fullness of time. That means when the time was ripe, when the time was ready, to what? Unite all things in him. Things in heaven, things on earth. There it is. The, the missio dei, the mission of God, the purpose of God is to unite all things in himself through the atoning work of Christ Jesus primarily. Because Jesus was uniquely qualified to accomplish the kind of redemption that God has set out to do here. He is uniquely qualified because he became fully human while remaining fully divine. Thomas, what your question was about this morning, right? Thomas was saying, when you read the Gospels, it seems like Jesus is such a human, but is he really God too? Does he really know everything? He sounds like he doesn't know what's going on. He was fully human and fully divine, 100% both. You math people are like, that can't be. <laughs> it's the mystery of the incarnation. Colossians 1, 19 and 20 says, For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Completely God. And through him, through Christ, to reconcile to himself, back to God, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The cross of Christ is the, the blazing center of God's plan to bring it all back to himself. It's the linchpin. It's the key to the whole thing. And one day, when, when this new creation is fully accomplished, when God's work is, is done of redemption, then Christ Jesus will sit on the throne over the new creation and proclaim, behold, I make all things new again. 
And one day, we're going to see it with him. That's what the text goes on to say. You know, we mentioned on Wednesday night this past week how if God's desire is to unite all things back to himself, then this text must imply that things currently are not united to himself. The, the rock band Aerosmith has a song that starts out, something wrong with the world today, I don't know what it is. Everybody knows that there's something wrong with the world. Things are not as they should be. When we were praying in the fireside room earlier, Ed was saying that, you know, the, the ice outside is not God's plan. It's dangerous. It's scary. No matter what socioeconomic class you're in today, no matter what political ideas you might hold to, surely we can all agree that this world is a messed up place. There is rampant injustice, violence, sickness all around us. There's something wrong with the world, and we know what it is. We can tell Steven Tyler, he lives in Nashville now, it's disunited from God. That's the problem. It's no longer in harmony with the Creator. So when did it become this way? When did, when did things go wrong? Was it ever good? You know, when God created the universe, He pronounced it was very good. It was very good in the beginning. There was no death. There was no suffering. There was no pain. There was no bloodshed, no inequality, no tears. But it all went wrong in Genesis 3. When sin enters the cosmos, it plunged it all into death and darkness and decay. Sin ripped a very good creation from God. It disunited all things from God and plunged it into these devastating effects of the fall. Paul describes this disunion from God in his letter to the Romans in chapter 8. It'll be on the screen. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God, the same freedom that you and I have. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Until now. Until the plan to redeem this broken world has been revealed through Jesus Christ. That's now. We get to live on this side of the cross when that mystery has been revealed to us. We get to see the hope for creation that was revealed through Jesus Christ. That privilege alone should blow our minds. So this, this series is about the church, right? Where does the church fit into this plan and purpose of God? We'll, we'll keep reading. Verse 11, in him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Here's our part in the story. We've already seen back in verse 5 last week how we, the church, have been predestined to be adopted as sons and, and daughters of God. 
I kind of skipped over that whole predestined thing, did kind of dodge that issue last week. Do you know what it means? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to get into it in a little bit here, but first off, let's, let's just make sure we're clear on adoption. Do you know what it means to be adopted, legally adopted? It, it means that you share in the full inheritance all the rights of the biological children become yours as well. You are completely legally in the eyes of the world and the government, you are part of that family wholly and completely. There's a, a cartoon that I read about where this pompous lawyer is standing before a group of greedy relatives and he's reading the last will and testament of, a, of the, the deceased and the caption says, I, John Jones, being of sound mind and body, Spin it all. <laughs> That's not the case with our inheritance. That's not the case for us. As adopted sons and daughters, our inheritance is secure. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead. Again, it's through Jesus this all happens. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Our inheritance is guaranteed. It is sure. Our glorious inheritance is kept secure for us because it's part of God's purpose. It's part of the outworking of God's ultimate plan. It says here in verse 11 that we've been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. I'll be honest with you, I don't, I don't fully understand predestination, okay? I, don't, I'm, I, don't, I can't explain it all to you. And I would caution you against listening to anyone who claims that they do, okay? There is a mysterious element to it. So here's a couple of brief words on predestination before we go any further, okay? First, denying the doctrine of predestination or election is, is not really a biblical option. To say, oh, I don't believe in predestination would, would put you at direct odds with texts like this, right? <laughs> and many other scriptures. Second, like I said, I don't fully understand predestination, neither do you. It's ultimately a mysterious thing that God has created. God's sovereignty, his, his will to control every single molecule of the universe is something that I'm just going to have to accept on faith and not by sight, and I'm okay with that. I trust that his ways are higher than my ways, and he knows what's up, even when I don't. I would encourage you to, to walk by faith on this issue. So, uh, third, God will accomplish what he wants to get accomplished. You know, people are free to disobey God's will, but the cool thing about how God works is he'll even use our disobedience and turn it for his purposes. It's amazing. He takes our sins, our mess-ups, and says, oh, that was, that was crazy what you did there. I'm going to use it for my glory. I'm going to use it for my kingdom. I'm going to use it for my purposes. That's what God does. That's, he's in the business of 
working good from bad 24-7. You know, I love the prayer of the apostles in the early church in Acts chapter 4. They're, they, they're praising God. They're, they're praying and they're thanking God for how he used Herod the Great and Pontius Pilate and the other enemies of Jesus. He used them as co-conspirators in his plan to accomplish salvation. They prayed in, in verse 27, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people, peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Isn't that awesome? Fourth and finally, the doctrine of predestination doesn't let us off the hook for our choices or for evangelism. Clearly, our choices matter. The last half of Ephesians, the last three chapters of Ephesians, are all about our choices. They're all about how we then should live in light of our calling as the elect, as the predestined of God, how our choices matter greatly. God is using our choices as part of his plan. We have been given free will. That's the mysterious element in it. Let's move on. Verse 13 says that both Gentile believers and Jewish believers have all been sealed with the same Holy Spirit. He says, you also have received this seal. The Holy Spirit, you know, enters into our lives the moment that we profess our faith in Jesus Christ as Lord of our lives and of our souls. That's a huge deal because Jesus was Jewish and, and the first Christians were all Jewish that came out of Jerusalem. The mother church was in Jerusalem. Jesus was the fulfillment of the, the Hebrew Bible, the, the promised Mashiach, the Messiah that doesn't replace the Old Covenant, but comes to fulfill the Old Covenant and all its promises with bringing a new covenant. So the, the fact that the same Spirit indwells different kinds of believers across ethnic lines, across geographic lines, poverty lines, is a, a major theme throughout the Bible and especially here in Ephesians. We know that from reading Revelation last month that the, the household of God that he's building is made up of believers from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And that was always part of God's plan. It was never meant to be a homogenous group of people in God's house, but a, a great diversity of believers. And that brings glory to God in the multifaceted beauty of his dwelling place with every kind of people in that house. You know, I love the scene at the Jerusalem Council in, in Acts 15. This is where the, the early church elders and apostles are gathered together. And Peter, who was once a, a strong Judaizer, wanting everybody to be a Jewish Christian, now defends the Gentile believers to the leaders of the church. In verse 7, it says, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, us Jewish believers. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. 
The seal of the Holy Spirit on God's people from all backgrounds means two things. First, it means that we're protected and preserved until we reach our glorious inheritance in eternity. The Spirit guarantees that we're one day going to reign with Christ as the co-heirs of the new creation in glory. Second, the seal of the Spirit means that we're marked by the King. You know how they used to put their seal on letters? It means that we're authentic. We're real saints. We're certified as holy ones set apart now in Christ. And then finally, as verse 14 reminds us, all of this saving work in God results in His glorious praise. You know, there's no greater achievement, there's no greater work that has ever been done than to take broken people and a broken creation like ours and make it whole. To restore it back together is the greatest work ever accomplished. And God should receive all the glory and all the credit and all the praise and all the worship for the work of redemption that He's doing in our world as He puts it all back together. And it's not just the hero of the story who's doing that work on his own. He invites his church to be a part of it. He builds his church in order to play their part in the story as his dwelling place. The church has a major part to play in this work of redemption. Last night when 17 homeless men and two of our own church members spent the night right below us here in the fellowship hall on a very cold night and they received dinner, breakfast, and a bag lunch along with toiletries and showers and new clothes and new shoes. That was a little taste of the new creation breaking into our world. When we hold out hope to support people in our church and in our community who are hurting physically, emotionally, spiritually through the various ministries of our church, when we have small groups that love each other well, when they come to to receive food pantry distributions on Tuesday mornings, when the TV broadcasts to the homebound and to the sick and to those who are in prison, when the deacons go visit the sick, when mission trips take medicine and healing and build churches and tell kids about Jesus, when we feed the hungry, when teenagers who are supported and encouraged by wise mentors like they are right now at the Ocoee Retreat Center on their retreat, when babies who are held by loving volunteers while their parents worship, all of these are ministries that help us engage in the redemptive work of God. How will you be a part of it? Maybe you're not serving in any of these ways and you feel God tugging at your heart saying it's time to get off the sidelines and into the game. You know, church isn't really church until you're not just being poured into, but you're also pouring out into others. I would encourage you to find one of those ministry placement cards at the visitor centers at the south entrance or the north entrance and see where you might plug in to these ministries of the church as we seek the redemption of all things and fix this broken world. You can talk to me or one of our staff members about how you can plug in here as we seek to see God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven together. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing to us the mystery of your plan to redeem this broken world back to yourself, to bring it all back to to brand new again. And God, we believe that this is reality. 
that our world is not the way it should be because sin has broken it. It has brought our world into disunion with yourself, but we seek the harmony of all things back together with you. Help us to be a part of your plan, God. Use us. Help us to fix what's wrong with this world. We thank you for the many ministries and the many servants of this church who give so selflessly of themselves to be a part of your redemptive purposes for the world. I pray that we would seek the lost, that we would bring the good news of the gospel to those who need it desperately. I pray that we would hold out hope to those who are hopeless, that we would be light in the darkness, a city on the hill that cannot be hidden. Oh God, we can't do that on our own. We need your grace. We need your Holy Spirit to fill us and send us out. We pray now, oh God, that you would do that in a mighty way and that our church would make a difference for eternity. We pray all these things in the high and the holy name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Maybe you've never given your life to Christ. Maybe you're here and you're lost and searching. You're in need of a plot that's greater than your own story. You're ready to, to surrender to God being the hero of your life. If that's you today, I'd love to talk with you about becoming a Christian, about laying down your life to the hero of all things. Maybe you, you're, you're ready to be a part of this team. You're ready to jump on board here at Woodmont and be a part of what God's doing and serve. And if you want to talk with me about that today, I'd love to, to receive you now. We're going to have a time of invitation. We're going to sing that Jesus is the hero. He is Lord of all. That means he is sovereign and he's in charge. Let's stand and sing together. Jesus is Lord of all.